There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On DAB, online, on the app and on your smart speaker. Following on, Ash's Inquest on TalkSport. What a performance. Overs, uh, 30 overs more action than we dared to dream for at the start of the day, but five wickets less than all England fans wanted. After rain all morning, the players finally making their way out to the ground just after two o'clock. Play getting away, underway at 2.45. We didn't know whether we'd get one over or ten. It looked a tough ask for the Aussies. But Labuschagne and Marsh backed themselves, played defensively with a straight bat when the ball was there to be hit. It was so. One hour, turn to two with a flat pitch, and Australia batted and batted with chances few and far between. A subdued hush filled the ground. Broken in the end, only for applause from the Aussies as Marnus reached three figures. Oh! A bit quicker. Labashane scampers through, and it's 100 for Marnus Labashane. He'll know the job is not done, but it's a very, very good 100. It was starting to look bleak, and with bad light meaning England's pace bowlers weren't allowed to bowl. It was over to Moeen Ali and Joe Roots, with the former England captain finally giving England something to cheer about. Pesto thinks he has him. And the review is immediate from England. Labuschagne had to go, and there was more excitement the ball before tea when England thought they had the nervy-looking Cameron Green caught at first slip, but it wasn't to be. The players walking off the field shortly afterwards for the final time. Rain setting in shortly afterwards, and that was that. And with an equally bleak-looking forecast for tomorrow, could this really be the end of England's chances of a series equaling win? You're listening to Following on Ashes Inquest on TalkSport.
big thanks to Sky Sports Cricket for those highlights clips alongside me. Until 8 o'clock is the former fast bowler, Ashes winner, Steve Harmison and Harmy. Despite the soggy, uh, uh, the soggy day, you were absolutely steaming at one point, weren't you? Today on the, on the old WhatsApps between us with uh, Jimmy Anderson bowling uh, bouncers at 79 miles an hour uh, under cloudy skies at his uh, home ground. It wasn't quite what you expected to see today. No, it wasn't. Um, in fair, in full play to fair play to Australia. Um, you know they've had to wait so long to get on a pitch, and it, it is so frustrating on days like that. You become lethargic, and that's natural because you've been lying around for so long and sitting around for so long. Um, but at one point, I've got you know 600 Test wickets bowling around the wicket at 80 mile an hour, and at the other end, I've got 600 and a bit more running round a wicket at 80 mile an hour and I'm thinking well I know Mark would only bowl four overs and I know the light was where it was but <laughs> there are plans and the players yeah, they've, they've made their plans and you see when Travis Head comes in very first ball the old disappear to the boundary and the short ball tactic and it's working <clears throat> but I think there's a couple of times in this series so far you just read the room and I think England are in a position behind in this series because they haven't read the room um, I don't really want to be critical because I know how difficult these days are as a player. But to go on the field when you've got literally Armageddon in the skies and it's as, it's as black and as bleak as anything and that, the atmosphere is as, as heavy as what it's... And you might have an old ball. It might be soft and it might not be moving. But yeah, the, you've, got to, you've got to hone in on off stump. You've really got to get your best chance of getting a wicket rather than... I think England in bowling conditions were hoping for a wicket tonight in some parts of that and it wasn't until Joe Root and Mo and Ali got on that the spin option it seemed to be the best way because you know Mark bowled four overs you know Wokes you know wasn't he wasn't that effective you know Jimmy and Brodie had their go but you're thinking just run up and hit the top of off stump and if Manus plays the way he, he has done and he defends it, well then fair play to him. He's a top, top player, but give yourselves the best chance of having catches in. I just thought we were hoping to get a wicket tonight rather than going after it. Yeah, I'll go with that. It was a funny old day today, Harmy. Um, look, uh, a lot of people didn't uh, turn up today. The forecast was bleak throughout, uh, unrelentingly bleak. But fair play to those that did stick around. I reckon the ground was about two-thirds full, but it was quiet, really quiet, and the pitch seemed flat. First over by Jimmy Anderson, went gun barrel straight. Um, and I don't know whether England just chopped and changed a little bit too much, whether they uh, they were forced out of their rhythms. You must you must know what it's like. There's so much pressure on England to get those wickets and they couldn't deliver. But it was a, it was a real sad day, to be honest. Real sad. Um, and look, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The forecast is really, really poor. But... I'm not quite sure England gave it uh, their best shot today. They're probably walking away thinking maybe we let the occasion and the importance of every single delivery weigh a little bit heavy on us. I don't know. We only heard from Marcus Truscothic tonight, so so we're, uh, we're not going to get too much insight with uh, due respect uh, to your former teammates. That tells you everything, to be honest, John, doesn't it, really? We've Does had 30 overs, no real sort of exertion of, of players. Can't say that somebody had a really bad day and you send out the coaches. I've been critical. I've been on, you say I was on my high horse with Jimmy and Brody, but when they were bowling around the wicket, but I've been on my high horse a couple of times after the game, when, especially when both England and Australia have had bad days and they've sent out Kiwi spinners. 
you know, to, to, they've sent out they've sent out spin spin bowlers from New Zealand to talk about the Ashes, which have got they've got no connection with whatsoever. And then England again tonight send out Marcus Truscothic. So I think that that sums it up. To be honest, it really does. But the good thing from an England point of view is the three overs away from a second new ball. They've let Australia off the hook a little bit, meaning England probably will have to bat again now. But again, there's times in this series where you scratch your head, largely down to the fact that missing opportunities, missing you know, reading the room and the situations, and then to see Marcus come out and speak, I think that's embarrassing. Uh, look, because of the spin, uh, the second new ball actually isn't that far off, is it? It's nine overs away. I think England would. If you if you were to offer England 30 overs tomorrow, 20 of them, we'll say 15 with the new ball, uh, nine with the old, and then five overs to chase down whatever needs to be chased down. I think they take that. Absolutely. But um, we shall see. Listen, we've uh, we don't have a huge amount of cricket to, to talk about today, and it was a real flat day today. So I thought, well, instead of letting the occasion get to us, we're all a bit down, and we're really going to go to the Oval two-one down, the greatest series ever. We'll have to wait for another day, and. Let's be honest, 2-2 two, two actually wouldn't be the worst result in the world. I think England to come back from 2-0 down and draw 2-2. Two, two, we would have all have taken that test and a half ago. But um, what we did today was essentially, I sent Sam out to go and talk to some of the journos and the fans and to ask them two questions. The best and the worst. Ashes memories um, from their life and career. And the first person he caught up with uh, was uh, Chris Stocks, who works for the iPaper. Hi, I'm Chris Stocks from the iPaper, and my best Ashes memory would be Boxing Day in 2010 at the MCG, absolutely rammed at the start of play, 90-odd thousand people in there by two-thirds of the day through, pretty much empty apart from the Barmy Army. England bowl out Australia for 98, the finish of day on 157 for one, pretty much wrapped up the Ashes there, retaining them, magical day. My worst memory, again, it's in Australia, Sydney, 2014, it was the match that wrapped up the whitewash for Australia. England were absolutely abysmal. You remember Boyd Rankin made his debut, yeah, limped out of that. Steve Borthwick made his debut as well, got a few wickets, but only because they were slogging him everywhere. He was getting caught long on <laughs> a long off. Uh, and that was a terrible end to a terrible tour. Yes, that really was the best and the worst, wasn't it? I was, um, I was at uh, Melbourne 2010. I was on air with Andy Goldstein and he was asking me about how good day two was here. And I was saying it was reaching levels where I was always thinking it was as good as uh, Melbourne 2010. Uh, listen, we're going to uh, we're going to have more best and worst throughout the show. Um, we're going to hear from Arnas Labuschagne as well. And joining us very shortly on following on Ashes Inquest after the break will be Jarrah Kimber. Hello, Simon Finch, the Barmy Army trumpeter here. Um, my favourite Ashes memory would have to be, of course, 2005. Probably watching uh, Peterson smacking Brettley all around the Oval. Um, that was amazing. My least favourite Ashes moment, actually, is watching the Aussies turn down singles and, and twos on the first day of this Test match. Disgusting. Disgusting behaviour. Uh, Matt uh, from Ringwood. Um, my favourite Ashes moment was uh, Ben Stokes's um, innings at Headingley in 2019. So I sat in uh, A&E in Bournemouth with my wife. Um, she was... Uh, having some um, some medical examinations while I was sat in the waiting room with about 40 other blokes. So that's one of my favourite memories. Uh, she was all right in the end. <laughs> and then um, worse was 0607 
So after the high of 05, went to Australia, got smashed. Enough said. And when you were in the hospital, did whatever pain you had or your wife had, was was, was Ben Stokes keeping keeping yeah. everyone occupied? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, that, like I say, there must have been at least 30 or 40 blokes all crowded around. One guy had the Sky Sports app, the rest of them had um, the radio on. So, yeah, whatever was else was going on behind the closed doors it sort of paled into insignificance, really. The greatest Ashes knock of all time has got to be up there, hasn't it? Yeah, it's got to be up there, but there's been some good ones this time. I mean, Crawley the other day was just... I mean, he rode his luck, but, yeah, just special, special innings. Hello, welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Following On Ashes Inquest with myself, John Norman, and Steve Harmison alongside me in the commentary box here at Old Trafford, Jarrah Kimber. Uh, Jarrah, we haven't really been talking too much about the cricket uh, that occurred today, but I suppose as you're with us now, well, it'd be churlish not to uh, to get your thoughts, really. I mean, it's uh, nobody knows what's going to happen with the weather tomorrow. Nobody saw 30 overs today. But uh, I suppose... Um, you know, it was pretty straightforward for what Australia needed to do today. And uh, Marnus Labuschagne did it uh, particularly well. Yeah, I think Marnus is the main story for Australia. Essentially, they've been waiting for him or Steve Smith to really step up. We know that Warner's not going to. Kawaja looked like he slowed down. But Head and Marsh are still batting well. Marnus is the other important one, especially because he can make big runs, right? So I thought that was really important. also thought it was interesting how quickly... Australia got on top, and so England had to rattle through the plans. And let's be honest, Joe Root probably wasn't even on the plan list. He was only bowling by accident. And if it wasn't for that, Australia looked like they could have easily cruised through. So there's some really good signs for them where you don't really expect, you know, we weren't expecting any good signs from Australia today other than rain. Yeah, Jared, I think there's a few things that I don't think Australia could believe their luck today. You know, only 30 overs in the day, rain forecast for tomorrow, and England's broad and Anderson, 1,200 test wickets, bowling around the wicket bounces <laughs> when the clouds were, you know, clouds were as dark as you'd ever see it over Manchester. You know, how, I'm not saying how lucky have Australia been, but do you think they've walked off there tonight and gone, oh, we've dodged one here? Yeah, I th- when they came out, Harmy, I don't know how you felt, but I was just watching every ball really carefully going, are these just all going dead straight? Like, mm. it was incredible how straight the ball was coming. And, you know, it was cold. And, and you know what it's like? Um, you know, I don't have to tell you of all people what it's like to bowl with a, with a red ball when it's cold and it's cloudy, but it doesn't always move, right? And it just looked like one of those things. The pitch was obviously very flat as well. When Jimmy Anderson started bowling bounces, I was like, it reminded me a little bit of Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon, you know, like a couple of days away from retirement. And they're like, can you come around the wicket and bang some bounces in for us, Jimmy? It was remarkable. But it shows how much Australia were in control and also how the conditions went their way. The conditions really haven't gone their way throughout this entire series at times. And that was the one time where you thought, well, they're going to come out, they're going to get rolled here because the ball's going to go around corners. And it just didn't. Okay then, so uh, it was a rainy day today, so how did you spend your time? <laughs> I spent my time, I wrote about Moen Ali. So Moen Ali is now, I think, is it 15th or the 16th player in Test cricket to score 3,000 runs and take 200 wickets? And uh, yeah, I won't get through all the names, but it's Kapil Dev, it's Imran Khan, it's Garfield Sobers, and it's Callis. It's not the most normal name, Moen Ali, to be throwing in with those. It's the elite of the elite. There's only probably only two players on that list that are not all-rounders, which is Stuart Broad and Shane Warne, and they're both, uh, they're both elite in other ways, right? So it's an incredible moment for him to, be, you know, to get to that mark. And also, when you look at his career, you're talking about a guy who started as a professional batter who ended up being England's frontline spinner for a generation and, you know, coming, not even supposed to be here. And they're like, hey, do you want to, what do you think about batting number three in an Ashes that you're not supposed to be playing in? 
it's such a weird career that he's had. Um, and for him to have that many runs and that many wickets, considering everything he's had to overcome and some of the mistreatment that England have given him over the years, it, it just doesn't make any sense. He's, he's done everything that England's ever asked of him, and uh, he's ended up with a lot of runs and a lot of wickets. It's interesting that, John, you're saying about writing... You know, when there's nothing happens in a day, you've got to go and find something to write because you still need column inches for tomorrow. What, Jared, what do you, what do you make of this, this series? What will people be writing? It's going to be an interesting day for writing because you could write if the forecast goes the way it's going and Australia win the Ashes or retain the Ashes tomorrow. Do you write how, you know, England have basically given the ashes to England uh, to Australia because mm. of the mistakes they made in the first two test matches or are you tempered by wow I can't really write that just in case we do get more than 35 overs tomorrow England win and we go for an absolute humdinger at, at the oval so you know where will the journalists be writing tonight because they've got to write something because yeah. there's nothing being said but is it a case of if we're looking back at this series so far is it a case of again today typifies the ashes in England completely missed opportunities I think today there might be a couple of articles about the missed opportunities, but I don't think anyone will be too harsh on them. And the fact that they manufactured a wicket at all probably goes in their credit. I think the Australian journalists will write about Manus. Um, usually what happens on days like this, Harvey, is you rely very heavily on the quotes. But uh, Tre- Tresco was doing the, the presser, so the quotes won't quite be um, as as fiery as some of the um, the journos would like. But at yeah, least he was English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but I do think that I think the Australians will talk about Manus. And I, 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 there might be a little bit in the England media about the late declaration. It wasn't a very baseball declaration, I think, from England. And then also, they, you know, we, we talked about how lost Australia looked. I felt like England just kept rotating through plans today. They didn't really know what to do to the Australians. And as I said, it was complete luck that Joe Root ended up bowling and taking that wicket. Okay, well, look, uh, before we let you go, we have been talking and we will continue to talk about best and worst so, Jared Kimber, your best Ashes memory as a fan and, and or as a journo and your worst Ashes memory. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you want me just as a fan, it's when Matthew Elliott made runs because he was my hero growing up. So yeah, that, well, that counts. Uh, you know, the, the incredible uh, knock that he played uh, over here. But I think, you know, the most exciting thing I ever saw, maybe, you know, certainly in my career, um, is probably Mitchell Johnson bowling and Adelaide. You know, I, it was incredible what he did in Brisbane. Um, but then he took it to Adelaide, and there was that moment, of course, when Stuart Broad came out, and there was a there was a bolt on the side of the sight screen that he spent forever trying to get, you know, uh, tampered down because it was in his line of sight. And then M- Mitchell Johnson went straight through. And, and look, I was lucky enough to cover all eight of Mitchell Johnson's Test matches, and you know, I've talked to Mitch about it a lot. It was it was an absolutely uh, phenomenal. It was almost the most one-sided um, thing. It was just Mitch Johnson just hitting people and and bowling them up until the point he went up against A.B. De Villiers, and he was the only one who stood up against him. So that's probably my best Ashes moment was that Mitchell Johnson summer. Um, The worst one is probably Simon Jones when he got injured. Uh, You know, I think as an Australian fan, we we thought our reign of, of being a great team would go on forever. But we also wanted other teams to be really, really good. You know, we had, you know, bits of South Africa get good and, you know, Sri Lanka occasionally and Pakistan. But we also wanted England to be good because West Indies had faded away by that point. And, you know, they had the big guy on the other end of this line um, and, and Simon Jones. They were properly exciting. You know, it, it's hard. There are times as an Australian fan watching Andy Caddick and Angus Fraser where, you know, you maybe were thinking to yourself, this isn't a fair fight. But when Simon Jones was around and he was, 
I know someone as a as a Surrey fan like you, he was kind of like England's wacko Eunice, right? You know, hit the stumps, bowled really fast. So watching him get carried off was uh, I st- I still remember that as a really really bad moment in Ashes history. Yeah, well, I mean, Harmy, you have uh, you'll have memories of that yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, I was on the front of the stretcher. I was carrying him. Um, somebody threw a coke can at him as we were going along the side of the field. And again, I I'll come I'll always come back to that moment. Um, in in a, in a in such a heavy-hearted way because obviously not only because Simons is so close to me, um, he was the guy who I think was the point of difference in that bowling attack that that the England England had during that sort of successful period of time, and you know the, it, it, it goes back to the Edgebaston game, 15 to win, and the ball went off Kasparovic's bat, off Andrew Flintoff, went down as sort of third man and the one person you didn't, anybody else, anybody else you wanted to go to had to dive forward. And the one person you didn't want to see dive during that passage of play was, was Simon Jones because of the, the horror and the nightmare of what happened at Brisbane. It was, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was heartbreaking, not only to carry him off, but to see him in the dressing room afterwards and then obviously to sit with him in his room before he went off to, to get the plane to go home you know, for somebody who was so close to me. Um, and you knew where you knew where his career path was going, unfortunately. Yeah, similar memories. Remember Sid Lawrence, David yeah. Sid Lawrence, mm. and he he broke his patella, Nicker. I think, didn't he, yeah. on the field? That was horrible. Um, Tudes as well carried off after being bounced by uh, by Brett Lee. That was um, next in, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't pleasant, trust me. The, U- the YouTube, yeah, my son keeps reminding me of the YouTube video of that. It's about six and a half minutes long, and there's a baby faced. Steve Armisen, three test matches in, walking out to see Alex Stewart, who's 40-year-old, who's seen it all, and I'm dodging around, trying to be as, as sort of energetic as I possibly can, and I am absolutely bricking it. I tell you what, I know it wasn't an Ashes test match, but watching that first hour at Sabina Park in 1998 made me sweat, yeah. like cold sweat of fear, just watching watching Joffrey Archer, that spell in 2019. The C. Smith one, yeah, that was one of the other ones I was thinking of, you know, just absolutely amazing. You know, for, for me, I remember, like, my first memories of cricket were watching David Boone, I think he made 100 in 86, 87, and just this oddly shaped man with <laughs> all this facial hair and and harmy i remember this and you remember this as well john i almost thought you were young for a minute there john but uh, david boone before after after every ball would readjust his box every time and so as a young man i was so obsessed by the <laughs> fact that david boone could not stop touching his groin for like three hours and all we saw was him like nudging John Embry around the corner for a single and then readjusting his box. Uh, and I was captivated with the sport then, I and I gonna, stayed the same. I was going to say, well, you didn't ask at women's the moment that you fell in love with cricket. <laughs> uh, Jared, you've got to get out of here. Thanks for your time. Jared will be back on the show. You're listening to Following on Ash's Inquest on TalkSport with me, John Norman, and him, Steve Harmison. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to uh, Following on Ash's Inquest. Um, and it's, uh, well, it's not raining here in Manchester, but it rained for most of today. Did get 30 overs. Uh, Australia adding 101 runs to their overnight score. Minus Labashain hitting his first overseas Ashes century. Uh, and England taking his wicket, the only wicket to fall today. Uh, if you love Talk Sport, join the club today to link your Alexa and Talk Sport accounts. Just say Alexa, ask at News Broadcasting to lock me in, and we'll send a link to your Alexa app. You only need to do it once, and uh, you'll become a part of the world's uh, biggest uh, a club. You'll be part of the club of the world's biggest sports radio station, which is, of course, a talk sport. Uh, right, we've been talking about best and worst Ashes moments, and uh, Sam Ellard caught up with Sam Jordan from Channel 9. Hello, it's Sam Jordan from Channel 9 in Australia. Uh, thinking about my best and worst Ashes memories, I think, I'm sure a few people have said by now, worst 2005. I was pretty young at the time and I think that's the first time that I really felt cricket heartache. Uh, and it's starting to come up again right now. I'm feeling it right now here in 2023. Uh, best Ashes memory uh, for me, definitely 2018, the Ashes series, the Sydney Test in Australia. Three days, my friends and I sat on the rope in the sun. It was 40 degrees every day, and it was an absolute demolition for Australia. Centuries for Usman Khawaja, Sean Marsh, and Mitch Marsh. I've never had more fun watching the cricket, <laughs> and I think that I let out some of those demons from 05 as well. So, great memories. Great memories indeed. What is our great memory is uh, their worst, and what's their greatest <laughs> is our worst, isn't it? That's kind of how it works. Yeah. So what about you then, Harmy? As a, as, were you much of a cricket watcher before no. you started playing? No, did not you really. It? Did you ever watch it? No, not really. I had very little, very little interest in cricket. Full stop. I went and played golf this morning when I knew it was going to rain. So, um, I, I, growing up watching the Ashes, it was all about David Boone, wasn't it? He was this great man who just kept scoring runs for fun. You know, I, I, me growing up, England were in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, demolition to talk about the, the, the 20 years that we eventually broke in 2005. And What's your first Ashes memory? Very first one. It probably was David Boone's bat in the air as he run, he run at, was it Old Trafford or he got 193. Might have been at Trent Bridge or Old Trafford, run away to win oh, the Ashes. So you were... So you were like a teenager then? Yeah, you I was a teenager remember, then. You didn't watch any before then? Yeah, I, that was that was me. Though I can't remember, 86, 7, in, when, when we won Down Under. I remember the videos. I've had the videos of it, but I can't remember watching anything of it, of it live. And then in, in 1996, I had the, or 1997, I had the fortune to uh, walk into a Durham dressing room as a 17, 18-year-old and um, have David Boone as my captain, which was which was so bizarre. Um, I couldn't speak to him for about three months because I was so in awe of this great man who played Ashes cricket and 107 Test matches because it was his picture was on the wall and his stats were underneath. And 
there you are as a, an 18 year old you know playing in the same side as him and I, I just couldn't speak to him for three months but he always Harmony, said he wouldn't have understood you anyway that's what I said for six Yay. months he said I've got no idea what you said so that's the way it was he didn't like the cold even coming from Tasmania um, my best memories are probably the one if I'm going on the ones I played was the probably the Giles Hoggard at Trent Bridge yeah. That was a, a special memory. I think from a memory's point of view, and I know you said they're worse than our and our best all and all, all that, vice versa. I still think one of the my one of my favourite memories was being on the field at Sydney when Steve, Steve Waugh got that hundred. Yeah. That was unbelievable. Mark that, Butcher, can you remember Mark Butcher told us? Yeah. It was the best atmosphere he'd ever heard. Never heard anything. You watch it again. If you watch the reruns of it again, or you see it on YouTube, it is. He walks out to about three twenty-three, I think it is, or three thirty-two. I know the numbers were that, that were the numbers, and he walks out to bat. And a lot of people thought that was the, that was the last time he was going to walk out to bat for mm. Australia in a Test match. And by the end of by the last ball of the day, he hits Richard Dawson for four, goes through extra cover. The noise, a crescendo of noise, and I, I, very rarely did you see you know Steve Steve War animated. Um, and he was he showed a little bit of emotion when he when he sort of got the hundred and. It was unbelievable to be on the field, and and to be honest, the worst ones, both of them happened in Brisbane. I think obviously you know the obvious one. Um, yeah, and, I was there. And the other one is Simon Jones um, yeah. to to Jared carry mentioned. a great pal off, like I mentioned in the talking to Jared. That was that was that was heartbreaking. Do you know I've got a story about the uh, Steve War, <clears throat> Steve War century, right? So. I used to know a couple of guys called Alex and Damo. I haven't seen them for years, but this story always stays in my mind. And they lived in a house in Clapham, which is South London. This is back, this is so, this is what, 20, 22, 23 years ago. Anyway, they, they're both big cricket fans, right? And Damo emigrates to Australia, okay? So after a year or so, Alex goes out there to see him. And he realises that when he's going to be out there, it's going to be at the same time as the Ashes. So he sends uh, Damo a message. He says, can you get me tickets? And Damo's like, yeah, yeah, no problem, mate. There's people in my office. I can definitely get you some tickets. It's not a problem. So the months start going and the, the trip starts getting nearer. And Alex is, every time he speaks to Damo, um, he's like, have you got those tickets yet? And Damo's like, no, I haven't got them. It's not a problem. I'm going to get the tickets. <laughs> not a problem. Anyway, Alex rolls up in Sydney. Uh, a week or so before the game, and Damo Ashenfaith has to let him in to the news that he kind of was expecting but didn't want to hear. Damo hadn't been able oh, to source no. any tickets, right? So Alex is crestfalling. He's a massive cricket fan. He's only going to be in town for a couple of days, and essentially he, he can't get to the cricket. And like, if anybody out there's been to the SCG, it's actually the toughest test to get tickets for mcg so vast you're going to be able to pick them up and if you can and same with adelaide oval actually but the scg it's big ground but it's a very popular ground and sydney's a big place it's, it's where everybody wants to be so anyway what makes matters worse is that damo's house looks out it's up by centennial park it's up near the scg and on that day that you were on the field um well, you, were, you weren't actually on the field, were you? were watching from the balcony. No, I was, I was being on the field. Oh, you're, you're on the field. So, you can hear the crowd from Damo's house. So, Alex <laughs> is sitting in Damo's house and he's watching the test match on the TV. And through the window, he can hear the crowd a few seconds before the TV pictures come through. 
And as the day progresses and Steve Waugh goes out there, and as you may mention, the crowd, as they realise that they might actually watch Steve Waugh score this century, or in one day, the crowd noise is getting louder and louder and louder. And Alex is sitting in his house and he can hear the sound from the crowd and it's coming through the window. And it all builds up to that final ball. And Steve Waugh crashes the ball to the boundary. The crowd go absolutely crazy. And Alex can hear this noise. And on the TV, Richie Benno is commentating. And Richie Benno just says, best day's cricket ever. (laughs) (laughs) And Alex is like, I can't believe I missed At least he was in the same postcode. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've got a similar memory from 2009 where I was the first time I ever met Goffey. And we were toured all around the country doing, he was doing updates on TalkSport. We get to the Oval and he's hosting one of his first ever drive time shows with Goff, uh, with Adrian down the road at a pub. So you remember the day that Stuart Broad took that spell? Yeah. An hour beforehand, we had to leave the ground, go down the road and we're doing the, the show and all we can hear is the Oval going absolutely <laughs> balmy and we actually missed Stuart Broad's golden spell. Yeah, that was, and I remember that because it took me off to get Stuart on because I realised the proper bowler was going to bowl and going to knock them over. That that Sydney one, the, the, the hilarious point of the Sydney one, we we got basically, uh, it was it was it was such a tough tour. There was we went across with a with a, about 25 players who were all injured, and at the end of it, never, never got a chance to go in the Australian dressing room. And here we are at the end of the tour, and I am now sitting in the Australian dressing room as a you know a baby faced. 24-year-old, I think, 25-year-old, with um, you know very little experience other than Ashes cricket. Because well, it was my, your second test match. My second test match was Adelaide, then third, fourth, and fifth. Yeah. Managed to play in, in Sydney, managed to, to win, and we're now in in the Australian dressing rooms with the greats. I mean, the good and the great of of cricket. And this was about one o'clock in the afternoon, and there's only about five of us stayed to go for a drink in the Australian dressing room. The rest of the lads, a lot of the, a lot of the older ones just sort of got on the bus and, and went back home. And, and Mark, what Mark Butcher doesn't tell us about the story of that, I think about 10 o'clock that night, there's five of us on the back of the, gra- the, 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 golf the dressing rooms. <laughs> the dressing attendants, Rocky, bless him, lovely fella. <laughs> he sadly passed away a few years ago. And I, I pinched his golf buggy and there was five of us on this and I'm now trying to drive it back into Sydney. We've gone up the hill by the rugby stadium and now trying to get onto the dual carriageway where Butch is sitting <laughs> next to me, pulls me to one side and saying, we can't do this. Butch, for once, got a conscience. Just completely turned me onto the side of the road and then we managed to flag two you know, two cars down and we got a, we got a taxi back to the back to the. the, the, the I think the the hotel on Park Lane in Sydney, and I remember going back for the one days. I was the only one out of the five who was playing in the one day series. I come waltzing in the dressing room after touring around Australia, getting battered again with my bag, puts it down, and Rocky comes running in. And I mean, Rocky would have been in his late seventies at the time, and he's gone, Armisen, I'm gonna kill you. I said, What? He says, You should have seen me trying to get that golf buggy off the dual carriageway. I was like, Oh no, oh, I, rem- I vaguely remember that, Rocky. I do apologize. I had to pay for some damage as well, so but it was great fun. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Look, we're going to have a couple more best and worst Ashes moments. I'm going to hear from the Australian cricket writer uh, who writes for the Australian and is Australian, Peter Lawler, um, and uh, plenty more before the end of the show. Right, earlier this evening, Sam Ellard caught up with the Australian's chief cricket writer, Peter Lawler, and asked him whether winning the Ashes uh, 
due in part to a washout would be bittersweet. Oh, I kind of feel torn in half about that prospect. I think it would be unfair and disrespectful to this series that we don't go to England to all. I mean, deep down, I'm an Australian and I want Australia to win, but that's not the way I want us to win. And I, I want to look, be able to say that I was at that series, that we all saw that series where they were two all and then they went to the Oval and it got decided there. I just reckon it let all the air out of, of the tyres. Uh, this has been one of the great series to be part of. You walk around town at night, and particularly England people, English people, I've never seen them so excited. On two occasions I've seen... Strangers walk up to each other, they realise that they're both cricket fans because, you know, in the pubs. And they're going, how good is this, pal? Yeah. And you go, yeah. And you, even as an Aussie, you stand back going, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's real good. It's great to be part of it. So, uh, you know what this means? Last session tomorrow, England <laughs> just get over the line. But only just, because I don't want you to get too cocky on the way, on, on the way into that last test. Yeah. You sold it to me perfectly. Um, I've got to ask you about Pat Cummins and his captaincy in particular. It has come under a lot of scrutiny over mm. the past 24 hours. Is it fair, some of the stick that he's taken? Look, yes. Yes, some of, well, some of the, some of the stick has been fair. Some of the criticism has been ridiculous. I mean, I've seen suggestions that he stand down as captain, this and that. Just shows you how much Australia hates losing to England, by the way. Because <laughs> here's a bloke who just banked the World Test Championship final. Here's a bloke who's, you know, done a very, very good job for a couple of years mm -hmm. since taking over in difficult circumstances. Um, he 2-0 up in the Ashes. I mean, the way people are carrying on, you reckon that Australia will be 3-0 down, but it's 2-1 as we sit here and talk right now. Everybody knew there was a danger picking a fast bowler. There's a reason there haven't been a lot of fast bowlers as captains because there are going to be moments where you're under great strain, you're tired, it's hard work, your head gets cloudy um, and, and you're better off just being one of those sort of, you know, comfy guys who sits in slips and bats, and bats for a living. Um, you don't want to be like, huffing and puffing and going from one end to the other and bowling and making the decisions. I don't think anyone ever really imagined, though, how difficult it would be against England's round of cricket. Oh, seven, six hours in the field when England are batting mm. is like playing three back-to-back -back T20 matches. <laughs> yeah. There is not... A moment's respite. You're always on. So you're always engaged. You're, you know, you're moving the field constantly. I mean, I, and when you move the field and you get done, you get criticised. When you move the field and it goes all right, everyone applauds you like they do with Stokesy. Um, you know, it's all very result-dependent. But have some sympathy for him. The loss of Nathan Lyon has been really... I reckon it's doubled his workload in a way. Yeah, of course. Uh, you just, if you've got Nathan Lyon there, you're throwing the ball and say, mate... Bowl from that end, will you? And, you know, me and Smithy will work out the fields or whatever. And then you never have to think about it again. You just have to think about one end. You've only got half the workload to think about. So he doesn't have Nathan Lyon. He doesn't have that reliability. The whole attack becomes twice as complex. And the attack against England when they get on top like that. And when Australia's batsmen have let you down in that first day. Australia batted, like, just mm. did not do the job on that first day. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it, about, oh, like, every one of them got 40 or 50. But I'm sorry, that was 140, 150 was needed from the batters on that track. That was absolutely a brilliant interview between uh, Peter Lawler from The Australian and Sam Ellard. And he absolutely nails it, doesn't he, in terms yeah. of just how important it is that we get a result here tomorrow.
on day five. Uh, the weather forecast for today was terrible, but we got 30 overs. I think England would take 30 overs tomorrow, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think they would. I think there's a, a. I think it's a better forecast for tomorrow after sort of lunchtime. I think two, three o'clock. I think we've got a good chance of getting best part of two sessions in with what we've what we've had. You last reckon? Goal. Yeah, I think so. I think by oh, looking at the that. by the looking at the forecast and looking at the weather map, it looks as though it sort of dries up around two o'clock, and then by the time they get the covers off, I, I think we've got. And then once it dries up, I think that's it for the day from the rain point of view. So England have got to hope hold hope that they might have to bat again. Well, they probably will have to bat again. Again, um, I like what Peter said there about Pat Cummins. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure too many other Australians could have done different against this England team. Now that they've worked out that Kamikaze Basball has turned into controlled <laughs> Basball. Yeah. And uh, after the first two Test matches, you know, I, all Pat Cummins had to do was say, "Lads, spread out. We're going to bowl some bouncers, and they're going to hit them down our throats." What, what, what more could go wrong from a captaincy point of view? In these last two test matches, it's been completely different. England have learned, give them the run around. That's why they're in the position of potentially going to 2-2. Two, two. Uh, but on the other hand is, you know, I wouldn't, if I was Australia, I wouldn't be bored of it. Rain tomorrow and we went, we re regained the ashes off the back of two days rain. You know, England have put themselves in that position. Um, I wouldn't say Australia deserve it, but I think England would deserve the fact that they would lose if that happened because of what happened in the first two test matches and the mistakes they made. Do you want to hear my best and worst Ashes memories? Come on then. Well, my best will be this test match in this series if it goes 2-2 two -two and yeah. then to the over and whatever happens. Do you know what? Back in 2005, I was watching the Edgbaston test match and there's Australia inched towards their victory target, which they, of course, finished too shy of. For the first time in my life, I actually thought to myself, do you know what? If Australia win this, I'm going to be okay with it because actually it will still be an incredible test match. And I really shocked myself to even think that. But you know what? At the start of this series, we were, England were 2-0 down and I didn't really feel that bad about it because I thought that was two amazing test matches. And if this series somehow conjures up another ridiculous conclusion, if we go to the Oval two apiece, whatever happens there, this will be my favourite Ashes memory ever. In terms of what has actually happened, I can't really look past Ben Stokes at Headingley in 2019. Even now, four years on, and having seen what we've seen from Stokes at different times, what he did on that day, I don't think anybody in any sport, I struggle to think of a parallel with what he achieved on that day. It was jaw-dropping uh, in its audacity and skill. Uh, and when you consider the series like it is now is on the line, um, that for me is my number one. My worst, do you know what? I think it was, it took place at this very ground and it took place 30 years ago and it took place in the Ashes test with the ball of the century. But I don't remember ball of the century and I think the reason I don't remember ball of the century, well, obviously I've seen it since, was because it happened when we were at school. Mm. I know that uh, neither of us had a perfectly... Um, Maybe we were bunking off school at the time, but essentially it happened at school, yeah. And it happened late on day four. And I gave up cricket. Harmy had had enough. Because yeah. I had been watching during the 80s, and I'd been watching it at the start of the 90s. And quite frankly, I'd seen more defeats than I could stomach. And it was day four. And essentially, England had been set a million and we just had to bat out day five. And it was that you just want to go to bed and being able to dream that you could do it, right? We're one down 
and Mike Gatting and Graham Gooch are at the crease and Australia are pounding in and essentially all I needed was to get through to Stumps one down and you know what happens Merv Hughes final ball of the day runs in my mum and dad are in the other room and they're calling me to come in for dinner it's gone six o'clock and all I want just let me dream tonight <laughs> that England can and I knew they wouldn't but they can get through day five and save the test match and Murph Hughes runs in, and I'm being called from the other room, and I'm kind of half in and half out the door, and I'm looking at the TV screen, and I'm like, yeah, I'll be there in a minute, I'll be there in a minute. And he runs in, past the uh, umpire, bowls the ball, and he bowls Mike Gatting off his pads, and I gave up. <laughs> I was like, I have had enough of cricket. It's too painful. And for about a week, I turned my back on the sport. But, of course, Did you enjoy are. your tea? <laughs> Oh, no, I didn't. And it, was, it was cold and I was in trouble. And that was my worst asses moment, I think. Brilliant. But there have been a lot of a bad, a lot of terrible asses moments. But, uh, but yeah, well, look, we can but dream, can't we, Harmy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whatever happens, me and you will be back tomorrow uh, following day five of the fourth test match here at Old Trafford. Hopefully, your predictions for the weather are a lot better than the uh, ones I've seen online. But you never know. We'll wake up tomorrow. We'll pull back the curtains. We'll look to the heavens. And if we get a session or two, then it's still on. England need five wickets. Australia need to bat for a good three hours or so. Uh, But who knows what's going to happen. Whatever I do know is that uh, you'll be back. I'll be back on following on Ashes Inquest 7 to 8 tomorrow. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 